Would you turn to Colossians chapter 1, verse 23? We'll only be going through one verse because that is all that I believe we can handle today. One verse. Colossians 1, verse 23. And the word of God reads, If indeed... You continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Why is it I believe that's all that we can handle today? It is because we come here to the conclusion of Paul's introduction to this letter. Here we come to the main goal. If the book of Colossians was a sermon, this verse would have perfectly been positioned to be the propositional statement, the, the thesis, if you like, of Paul, his purpose of writing this letter. What is his purpose? That the Colossians to continue in the faith, to be firmly established and steadfast, to not move away from the hope of the gospel. Everything Paul said thus far is behind this statement in order to support it, to encourage it. And may I say, everything he will say from this point onwards, it is to inflame it all the more, to ignite it, to apply it in our lives. What is this verse about? This is, if you like, the kernel of our sanctification seed. It is our holiness in a nutshell. The blueprint of our Christian life. You can basically summarize who is a Christian to this statement? It is the hallmark of a Christian. Last time we saw that in order for us to be reconciled, there would be only one single event in all of human history, the death of our Lord Jesus. But to be sanctified, it's a long life journey. Now, before we run ahead of ourselves, just a quick review. What we spoke about last time is that we saw that if you are a believer, this is what Jesus has already done for you. He brought you from a place of enmity to a place where you're accepted by God, where you have peace with God. You are now in a position of being, as it says, holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. It is done deal. Yes, of course, we will um, pract uh, uh, practically, um, in reality, in every aspect, as a whole being, one day in the future will be presented before God the Father, holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. But right now, positionally, it is already done because of Jesus Christ. Holy means that once you were an alienated to sin, now you're set, set, apart, set apart from sin, consecrated to God, fully dedicated to Him. Blameless, meaning once you were an enemy, now because of the blood of Jesus Christ, God sees you as innocent as His Son. We now stand faultless, guiltless in the sight of God because precisely that we are covered by the blood of the Lamb. And beyond reproach, meaning once you had evil deeds. And now God sees nothing but the perfect righteousness of Jesus in you. We were um, in, a, in a state, a terrible state, full of sin. But now we're in a state where there will be no criticism, no accusation can be made against us. Not one single 
charge can be brought against the elect, those that are saved by Christ. Now the scripture summarizes all of this and it puts it together and it gives it a term and this term is justification. And justification, as the Puritans said, it is solely the work of God in the soul of man. But what about sanctification? What about today? Well, I would define sanctification to be this. It is the work of God through the blood, the sweat, and the tears of man. Sanctification is a dying daily so that Jesus would be manifested in our flesh. It is the constant modification, the putting to death the indwelling sin in our flesh so that the life of Jesus would be made visible through us. In other words, Christ whom you entrusted for your salvation, that's justification, you would continue to entrust him in every aspect of your life. And thus, Christ would truly become the preeminent one, the exalted Savior, the high and lifted up Lord over our lives. And this is where Paul is heading with this. And so, although if you read this verse that we read together, you won't find any imperative command. There is no emotional appeal for us to be holy. But yet, with every pen stroke in this verse, Paul is pressing us on. He's urging us to persevere in our faith. And there are three underlying motives that he gives us in this verse, in this passage, and even leading up to this point, in order for us to continue to be sanctified and to never give up. And that will form the outline for today's message. Very simple. Past, present, and future. Past, present, and future. Again, before we even begin going through this outline, I want to bring to your attention something that is crucially important. Let's read verse 23, just the first part of it. It says, If indeed you continue in the faith. Now, what is it that is so crucial I want to bring to your attention? Well, some like to rob us of a doctrine, a beautiful gem. Wonderful diamond in God's doctrines that he's given us. And it's called eternal security. Once you're saved, if you're truly saved, once you're saved, you're always saved. There are those who would look at this phrase and they would say, look. <clears throat> yes, we were enemies and Christ reconciled us to the Father. Yes, he will present us blameless and without sin to the Father. This is all good, but that's all that they say. But that's all if indeed you continue. That's a big if. Meaning, in one hand, you may have truly been converted, truly justified, truly regenerated, but it is not guaranteed that Christ will present you blameless and beyond reproach before the Father. Why? Well, look, read this. It's entirely dependent on your effort if indeed you continue in the faith. And I submit to you that this is a twisting of the word of God. It's an insult to the faithfulness of Jesus, the undermining the power of God that preserves us. Why? First of all, the scripture never teaches that the true followers of Christ will ever lose their salvation. No way. Yes, it is true that there are those who claim to be Christians. We know this. Many 
unconverted souls claim to be born again when they're not. They were never, ever saved in the first place. And it is true that those kind of people can ultimately abandon their faith that they never professed in, in the first place in their heart, with their mouth, but not in their hearts. The scripture makes this very clear in 1 John chapter 2. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, what would they have done? They would have remained with us, but they went out. Why? So that it may, so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. Okay? But the genuine Christian, once he is saved, he'll always be saved. Oh, what do you do with this passage, today's passage? What do we do with that? What is it saying? Well, I submit to you, not only is it teaching that a believer can never lose his salvation, I'm going to go all the way to the exact opposite. And I want to submit to you that it's actually teaching those who are genuinely saved, they are and they will indeed continue holding their faith. Let me show you why. Please note these first two words, if indeed. Now, we can read it. English language sometimes can be very weak in its translation. But in Greek, it's called the first class condition. That is to say, in Greek, these words, in this phrase, it is a guaranteed fact. Paul is not saying here, oh man, I wish that you would continue holding onto your faith, but I'm not really sure that you will. No, he's actually stating a fact. This word, if you could actually replace it with the word since, since indeed, in a lot of the fact. It's, it's like in Luke 12 verse 28, where Jesus says, if God so clothes the grass in the field. Now, Jesus, when he says that, it's not that Jesus is not sure. Does God really close the grass of the field? He's not 100% certain. But, you know, if God does this, no. God does clothe the grass of the field. But this, if yeah, it's, it's a logical flow, it can easily again be replaced with the word since. Since God does clothe the grass of the field, how much more will he clothe you? And so Paul, what Paul is saying here in our uh, verse is that I praise God for you, that you are reconciled to God. I am thankful to God for you that you are in a perfect standing before him. How come? I see the effect in your life. Since indeed you are and you will continue in the faith. That's what he's saying. And this continue in the faith, it is not just a mental recognition or acknowledgement of the faith. You know, where someone continually saying, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. That's not what he has in mind. This faith here implies that there is continual relationship, clinging. You continue to cling to Christ. You glue your heart onto Christ. And what Paul is saying here in the context of Colossians' letter that he wrote, and the reason why he wrote it in the first place is that he's basically saying to them, I know you have many false teachers and they're spreading heresies around you. They're like snakes spitting venom on the deity of Christ. They're savage wolves and they want to tear apart your devotion to him. But praise the Lord, they won't kill you. Your faith will not be destroyed. How come? Since indeed, beyond any shadow of a doubt, you continually holding on to Christ. 
Yes, genuine Christians may momentarily sin, for sure. Even go as far as betraying Christ momentarily. But they will never totally fall away from Him. How come? How is it that believers will continue in their faith? Now we come to the first point. So far, it's just the introduction. We come to the first point. Because of the past. Because of the past. What does that mean? Believers sincerely believe what Jesus did for them in the past to be true. That's why they will continue in their faith. What do I mean by that? Well, let's have a look at some of the things that Jesus has done for the Colossians that Peter, that sorry, Paul penned down in verse 14. Jesus redeemed them. He's forgiven their sins. Verse 18, Jesus has become their head. Verse 20, Jesus bled and died to reconcile them to the Father. Verse 22, Jesus already positioned them. Yes, in the future they will actually, but already he positioned them and declared them to be holy, blameless, beyond reproach. And it's already, and it's because of what Jesus already did for them in the past. It motivates us to continue in the faith, to never give up. How was that? I want to show you a couple of ways how what Jesus did in the past for us helps us to stand firm and to continue in our faith. First of all, when we reflect on what Jesus has done for us in the past, we realize it actually reveals his love for us, does it not? It compels us to lock both of our eyeballs onto Jesus Christ. It says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, we love because we love him because he first loved us. So no matter the fiery darts of the enemy, Jesus' love for us compels us to want to love him and continue in that faith, to cling to him. Let's reflect on that for a moment, brothers. Jesus is our sacrificial lamb. And when we know, when we reflect on how filthy we were, in such bondage and headed for hell, and we were without any hope, all evidences were pointing to the fact that we are guilty sinners under God's wrath, deserving His judgment. And there will be no reason whatsoever why such a holy God would save people as wicked as us. Why beyond our reach to ever think, how is it that Jesus loves us? But He does. He took your place. On the cross, the Father laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He drank the full cup of God's wrath for you. He carried your guilt, paid your debt, loosened your chains, and set you free. And you are forever forgiven. And then he said, you are mine. You can enjoy being part of God's family now. Brothers, does this truth not move us? Does it not compel our hearts to say, Yes, Lord Jesus, for your sake we will persevere. Another way that what Jesus has done for us in the past leads us to persevere is the fact that he secured for us our eternal life. It is the security of our eternal life in the past that fuels and ignites us to continue to persevere. Again, some claim that if we embrace this doctrine, eternal security, they, they claim that if we do hold on to it and teach it, that we will become complacent. And they say, what's the point, preserving, if, 
if our eternity, eternal life is secured. There's no point. Well, these people love to be flogged into holiness. They only dance when the heat is on. Right? Meaning, they're only motivated by the fear of punishment rather than being grateful. I want to pause here. I want to give you a universal principle that applies to every man and every woman. We need to understand this. Fear of punishment will never help anybody to grow. It won't. Yes, it can serve in saving people. That's justification. But in sanctification, it will never help them to grow. Why is that? Because so long as you're motivated by fear, you may come to church, you may study the true doctrines, you refute false teachers, and one day somebody would ask you, Sir, why are you doing all of these things? What would you say? I'm fearing hell. I don't want to go to hell. I want to make sure that my sins are forgiven. Ah. Then who are you doing all these things for? For you, not for God. And you will never grow one inch with this false teaching. But if you rest in the fact that Christ definitely, irrevocably, secure the place for you in heaven, what will happen? Your heart would be filled with gratitude. Your chest would explode with thankfulness to Him. And you will want to hold tightly onto Christ, not because you're fearing death and hell, no, but because you're so ever grateful that your eternal life is secured. Right? That you always belong to the family of God no matter what happens. And then you begin to realize that you are part of God's divine plan. And this will give your life a deep meaning and purpose. And you will persevere in the faith. And you will grow. Security of eternal life will actually help you to grow. How thankful should we be, brothers and sisters, for what Christ has done for us in the past? Everything he accomplished for us. Everything is like an ivy hook that constrains us to persevere. It's a boost of adrenaline in our endurance. And Paul is saying here, he has full confidence that believers, genuine believers, will continue in their perseverance. Why? Because of what God has done for them in the past. But not only that, but because what God is doing for them in the presence. In the presence. So that's the second point. The reason why we persevere is because of God's current, right now, protection. He exercises His power, His faithfulness, His passionate love to guarantee our safe arrival to the shores of heaven. What a God we have. Amen. We continue with that verse. Verse 23 says, If indeed you continue in the faith, now pay attention to the three modifiers after this. Firmly established, steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Now these three modifiers are in a passive tense. Meaning, it's something done unto us. We don't do this. We're affected by it. In other words, we're not the ones who establish ourselves. Something, or more specifically, someone outside of us, not us, who is firmly establishing us, making us steadfast, holding us tight, so tight, so that we don't move away from the hope of the gospel. I wonder who this person might be. Let's go through some passages to know who it is. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23 and verse 24. It says, Now 
may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and the body be preserved, complete, without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hmm. Who is it that does the preservation? Who does it? Who secures it for us? Who is it that will ensure that we're going to be preserved all the way till the end? Is it us? It's God. How do we know that? Let's continue. Verse 24. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. God is the one that will bring it to pass. You will work, absolutely, but it is God that will ensure that it will happen. He will bring it to pass. Faithful is he. So if God doesn't preserve us all the way to the end, what are you bringing into question? The faithfulness of God. Not only his faithfulness, but also his power. If God doesn't preserve us all the way to the end, you are insulting the power of God that protects us. How do we know this? First Peter 1.5. You who are protected by the power of God. Now, how much power does God have? You are who are protected by this unlimited, boundless, infinite, eternal power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It is the omnipotence of God that secures our faith in Christ. God's faithfulness, God's power, but not only that, but His even triune head ensures our salvation. And I love this verse that I'm about to read to you. His triune head, the Trinity, ensures our salvation. Ephesians 1.13 <clears throat> It says, In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, listen to this, <clears throat> and highlight three words here. You were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. Now, what does this mean? Paul is using here a common financial concept of his time. Back in, in the days in Rome, if you wanted to buy a piece of property, you don't, like today, basically, you don't pay the full amount. You pay a little bit, a small amount, um, as a guarantee, a promise that you will pay the rest. This deposit is like your personal seal. It's a pledge. And you're saying, this land is mine. And you go ahead and you go and you grab the rest of the money and you come back and you pay it. But you leave that deposit as a seal, as a guarantee. Now what happens in a case if you don't come back and pay the rest of the money? You lose your deposit, right? So also when you believe in God, He gives you a special deposit. What is it? What is His deposit that He gives you? Who is it that is indwelling in you? The Holy Spirit. He is the deposit. And this is not just any deposit. It's God's own seal. It is His promise saying you are mine. You are mine forever. And what Paul is saying here, if you are once saved and sealed by the Holy Spirit, ready to receive your inheritance. And if God then fails to come back and give you your full inheritance, what happens to the seal? It is broken. The Holy Spirit is severed from the triune Godhead. And in the light of the fact that this is impossible to happen, it is equally impossible for any of God's children to lose his salvation. 
Ah, this ought to cause us to thank God, does it not? We should, we should be the most joyful people in the face of this planet, no matter how circumstances we go through. You have eternal life. And it is God that preserves it for you. He promises to grant you eternal life. Now, while we're still in this point, I don't want to go to the third yet. How does God, in the presence, preserve you? How does he cause you to continue in the faith? What does he do? Well, we read in, in Ephesians already that he gives you the Holy Spirit, right? Well, what does the Holy Spirit do? do? How does he ensure that you will not lose your salvation? Well, you read. You read his word. He causes you, as you're reading it, to illuminate your mind with the truth about Christ. He guides you to follow Christ. He empowers you to be nourished by Christ. Also, God gives you a new nature. Why? So that you can get to enjoy magnifying Christ. You delight in serving Christ. And so when false teachers come around and walk in this town with their um, last fad, latest fad uh, and their heresy, an internal antenna goes up and then you cringe. And even if momentarily you give in to this false teaching, what happens? The Holy Spirit is grieved. And you'll be made to feel miserable inside. God comes with his rod of trial and then he would chastise you. It would feel like you're grinding crushed rocks with your teeth. Those among us who have experienced a, you know, backslidden and experienced the chastisement of God can identify with this, can't they? Some of you are nodding your heads. But aren't you glad? No matter what happens, God will never give up on you. Never. Praise the Lord. Once you are saved, you will never perish. Once you are found, you will never be lost again. And Paul is saying here, because of God's faithfulness to you, and because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the new nature and God's discipline, I know you will not take it for granted. You will not give in to these false teaching. So what's he saying? He's saying, keep going in your faith. Keep on trusting in Christ. Continue pursuing Him. Never give up in this glorious chase. Keep growing in the Lord. Because of the past and the presence, and also the future. I know, and I know, and I know you will continue in your faith. What are we talking about, the future? Well, here is, here is what we're talking about. It continues on with that verse, and it says, The hope of the gospel that you have heard. The hope of the gospel. Hope is a certainty of real expectation of what is to come. We're looking at the future with assurance, with confidence that something glorious in the future will most definitely take place. And Paul is saying here, remember the hope of the gospel which you heard. I am confident you're not moving away from it. He's saying it as a statement. But we need to understand the underlying tone. And he's basically saying, brothers, continue to draw strength and endurance from the hope of the gospel. This is how you're going to grow leaps and bounds when you suck all the nutrition of the hope of the gospel. What is this hope of the gospel that he's talking about? Well, he actually says to them, you know what it is. You heard it. It's not a secret. Like the false teachers tell you, you know, again, the, Gnostic, the, the heresy of Gnosticism, where in order for you to be saved, what do you have to do? You have to hear a secret. 
some, in, some secret information that someone has to tell you, whisper in your ears. And once you know it, you're saved. And he's saying here, in fact, this hope of the gospel, let's continue the verse so we can finish. It says, which was proclaimed in what? All creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, was made a minister. The whole world knows about it. What does, the, what does the saying go? If a secret is shared among three people, it's not a secret. Paul's saying the whole world knows about it. What is it? Well, if you recall in verse 5, he already mentioned that the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. Do you want to genuinely grow in your unwavering faith in Christ? Even when it hurts? You want to make sure that your sanctification is not distracted by the affairs of this world? Look up to heaven. Pay attention to what is locked away for you in heaven. What is certain? What is you're absolutely confident that will come? The hope of the gospel. Okay? Still a bit abstract, is it not? We want to know precisely what is this hope that we need to stare at and look upon? What is our hope of the gospel? 1 Timothy 1 verse 1, it says, Jesus who is our hope. Okay, it's getting a bit clearer now. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that King of kings. Yes, he did die for us. But where is he now? He's Christ, this King. He's gone to war against sin and death for us. And he's won victory for us and he overthrew the grave. And the gospel says that Jesus, this same Jesus, has ascended to the highest of heaven. And he reigns and he rules over heaven and earth. Anybody that will put his trust in him will be saved. Now, our hope of the gospel Certainty of something glorious will take place in the future. What is it? This same Jesus is coming back again for us to take us home. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 19, it says, If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, meaning if Jesus is not going to come back for us, we are of all men most to be pitied. In other words, you might as well press the red button, pull the pin on your sanctification. It's not worth it. But aren't we thankful to God that all of Jesus, with his unveiled glory, is our hope of the gospel, that he is coming quickly. He is coming back, not only coming back, but he's coming quickly. And the scripture says, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, with a shout from heaven, he will rapture all of us and we will be with him forever. Beloved, a day will come. It is guaranteed. That's why we call it hope. That Jesus will bring us home. With our resurrected bodies. And we'll behold him. And he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. We will no longer experience death. There will be no more mourning or crying or pain. Jesus is our hope. He guarantees it. This is our hope of the gospel that, that we ought to draw strength from. And may I remind you brothers. May I remind you, when Jesus comes back to take us home, he's not coming empty-handed. Revelation chapter 22 says, Behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. And these rewards will last forever. Our Lord promised the stronger we cling to him. The more we make war to continue in our faith, the greater our reward will be. 
He's coming back. And he will have lots of rewards. And not only rewards. Don't forget our inheritance. He will give us our inheritance when we see him. Which is imperishable, undefiled and will not fade away. Reserved in heaven for you. And after a thousand years would pass, we will forever be with him and we will enjoy our crowns and the streets of gold and everything that the scripture blesses us with. What would God withhold from giving and showering his blood-bought children? And brothers, when we let this hope of the gospel sink deep into our hearts who in his right mind would let himself be entangled by the messed up world that we live in what madness what insanity that in the light of this hope that we still attach our hearts to this world it's all gonna burn brothers all gonna burn what do we do we fling away all that is going to burn because our heart is filled with the hope of the gospel and we're not going to fling him away miserably feeling bitterness and anger no we rejoice as we're sacrificing ourselves as we're continuing in our faith. In other words, since we have this hope, we will joyfully endure. We will carry our afflictions in our backs, scars of our crosses in our shoulders, and though tears of suffering would fill our eyes, but brothers, one glimpse, this one, one peak on our hope of the gospel, the fact that Jesus will return and take us home, it ought to fill our hearts with joy inexpressible. As Peter says it in 1 Peter 1. So yes, sanctification is hard. It is hard. As we continually trust in our Lord, this is not easy, gang. We will suffer. We will suffer. But the more we will suffer for Christ because of our hope, we can say we still have the better end of the bargain. Our Lord is coming back quickly. And He's not coming back alone. No. He's coming back with rewards, with glorified, resurrected bodies, and we will leave behind all the battles and the trials behind us and the fights against our temptations. We won't need no longer to take any pills for our broken bodies. No more will we ever be disappointed because our expectations are not met. No. And all that is left for us is real, long, Lasting, physical peace, physical joy, physical, unhindered, unbroken fellowship with one another and with the Lord. What a scene it'll be, brothers and sisters. What a scene. And on that day, I assure you, you look back in time and you see how you wrestled all the way to the end. And you look back in all the prices, all the sacrifices you made. You're going to look back in time and then in the balance of eternity, you will say it was worth it at the end. It was worth it. This is our hope of the gospel, brothers. This is what we're not meant to move away from. This is why we will persevere to the end. Why? Because of what Jesus has done. Because what he is doing and because of what he will do when he comes back and takes us home. Beautiful, isn't it? Beautiful. 
So to the outsiders, you guys suffer? Why? Why should you do all these things for the Lord? Why should you go out of your way? Love one another and make sacrifices for one another. Why would you put yourself on so much? And to them, we're foolish people. But to us, who are being saved, <laughs> it makes perfect sense while we're making all those sacrifices. Our eyes are locked into eternity, right? And we say it's worth it at the end. Amen? Now, I know that there are some of us here in this room who are not yet saved. And as I have interacted with some of them, I know that they're eager to be saved. They would love to be saved. And as I interacted more, I, I came to a realization, even after so many preaching and teaching, they still don't know what to do to be saved. And so I want to use this opportunity to talk to you personally. Do you want to take part of what is to come? Do you want to look in the past and you find all your sins are forgiven? That today the Holy Spirit would indwell within you and in the future... God will continue to preserve you until the end where he will give you rewards, eternal life, and fellowship with him. Do you want that, but you don't know how to obtain it? I want to help you to understand two elements that you heard of so many times, repentance and faith. What is repentance? You have to repent of your sin. What does this mean? It doesn't mean that you've got to love God. In fact, that is the exact opposite of repentance. It does not mean that you desire Christ. That is again the exact opposite of repentance. It does not mean that you are humble. That is the exact opposite of repentance. What is repentance? You look internally. Within your soul. It is not that you find love for God and so, okay, I'm now moving towards Christ. No, on the contrary, you find that you hate God. Internal hatred towards His will, His desire. You have the right assessment of yourself that is the same assessment of what God, how God views you. And so, you have your guards down. You no longer rely on yourself for your salvation. You abandon this war that you're continually fighting against God saying, no, I am good on my own. On the contrary, you look internally and you find nothing good dwells. Then what do you do? You come to a point of despair. And you say, I am undone. There is nothing good that dwells within me. What can I do to be saved? Who can help me to flee from the wrath to come? Who? That's repentance. You don't do anything good. Nor do you find anything good in you. On the contrary, it is when you acknowledge that there is nothing good. And you come. And with the eyes of faith, you look upon Jesus. And you find everything good dwells in him. You acknowledge this truth. Everything good and right and proper is only found in Jesus Christ. And you find him to be the right savior for your soul. So you entrust him with your salvation. You lay hold on to Christ. You run to Christ. You cling to Christ. You say, I want to hide in your wounds from the wrath to come. You simply rest in Jesus for your salvation. So in one hand, repentance. You come to a complete realization that there is nothing good in you dwells, so that 
to a point that you no longer rely on yourself to be saved. And faith is now your eyes are looking upon Christ and he alone is able to save you. Have you repented? Have you, have, have you come to a point where you put your trust in Jesus to save you? This is all that you, you could do. And even when you do this, you're going to come later on and you look back in time and you realize that even repentance and faith are gifts from God. Amen. May you come to this realization. May you repent of your sins. May you abandon this constant, stubborn fight that you are good on your own. May you lay down these weapons of self-righteousness and say to God, I am a man with unclean lips. I am undone. I got nothing to offer you but sin. It is not that I have now humility. It is I have pride. It is not that I'm selfless. It is I'm full of selfishness and I bring them all to the cross. And you find Jesus such a great Savior, such a wonderful Savior, that He would carry that burden off of you. And He would be the one who would pay the price for you. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, sanctification. What a beautiful journey. Though it may be hard, but so long as our eyes are connected to Jesus, so long as we remember what he has done for us and, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the new nature, even your discipline, so long as we draw strength by remembering the hope we have in him, in Christ, what a journey it would be. Cause us, Lord, to always be um, people that would want to be eager to, to continue in our sanctification, to continue drawing strength from what Jesus has done, what he's doing, and he, what he will do in the future. In Jesus' name, amen.